You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Hello, my name is Father Kevin Flannery. I'm a Jesuit. I teach at the Jesuit University in Rome, the Pontifical Gregorian University, and I teach their ancient philosophy, primarily uh, the philosophy of, of Aristotle, also occasionally uh, saying something in my uh, teaching about Thomas Aquinas, and in fact I'll say something a good deal about both these figures in these lessons today. The lessons for these um, videos are two in number. As you know, there are five written lessons. What I've done for these video lessons is I've, I've left off the first and the last of the written lessons, and, uh, and I'll look at uh, primarily the ideas contained in the middle three lessons. And in fact, this first lesson will have primarily to do, and in fact solely to do, with what we find in the second written lesson. And the second video lesson will be a combination of things that we find in the third and fourth written lessons. Uh, those, uh, three, that, those two lessons are about uh, the ethics of sexuality and reproduction, and uh, the, fifth, or the, the fourth one uh, is about uh, the ethics of killing or letting live also. One word about uh, what I hope to accomplish in these uh, video lessons, and in fact in all the lessons, I would hope that uh, by means of these lessons that you might uh, come to understand how ethics works uh, from the inside. I'll be talking a good deal about uh, intelligibility, about reason, and, uh, and I very much hope that together we can get achieve some sort of grasp of, of the very reasonability of ethics. In that way, when you come across, uh, either in your reading or also in your personal lives, some ethical problem, some issue you need to solve, you'll have the equipment uh, to solve those questions. I might also mention that some of the examples that I use are a bit controversial. I'll talk about uh, war, I'll talk about uh, the use of uh, condoms in, uh, in certain uh, circumstances. These uh, controversial examples I, I find are useful. They, they focus the mind, they help us to understand, in fact, the reasons behind uh, certain ethical judgments that the uh, church has uh, come up with, and, and they force us to, to use our own reasons so that uh, uh, we can grasp uh, the intelligibility of, of these actions, these types of actions. So then, to begin with, with uh, what uh, is the topic of this uh, first uh, video lecture, that is the nature of human action itself. Hamlet, in uh, the famous uh, play of uh, Shakespeare, says that there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. He had something quite different in mind uh, when he said that. He was talking, in fact, about uh, Denmark, whether it was a good place or, or a bad place. And yet, as uh, so often in Shakespeare, these uh, words uh, from, from, 
from uh, Hamlet, spoken by Hamlet, uh, tell us a great deal about uh, uh, the human situation. And the fact is that ethics is simply about what uh, is rational, what is intelligible. That is, everything uh, in ethics comes from and depends on uh, rationality. This uh, theme uh, was mentioned several times in Dr. McInerney's first uh, lectures uh, in which he talked about the importance of reason for Christian faith. In many ways, this is simply a, cont a continuation of that idea. I've used the word intelligibility a number of times, and uh, so perhaps it would be good to say something about uh, that word. And what it means, basically, is simply understandability. Anything that we can understand, anything that has even a minimum of uh, intellectual content uh, can be described as intelligible. The idea basically comes from Aristotle, but also Thomas, who obviously, as you know, I'm sure that, um, uh, they did a good deal of work in, in logic and, uh, and uh, work, in the, work on the intelligibility of stringing words together. In fact, one of the best examples to use of for the intelligible, for under, understanding uh, uh, things, or for understanding what intelligibility is, is language itself. A language that is a general uh, language, a language uh, understood in a, in a general sense, uh, is something that can be understood. It's, it's a mass of propositions, sentences, words, etc. And uh, uh, if we had a perfectly intelligible language in which all the sentences uh, uttered were uh, uh, well-formed and reasonable sentences, then, then you would have a, a whole language, even a whole culture, which was perfectly intelligible. Uh, obviously, that's not something which uh, uh, presents itself in this world. But let's speak a bit just about smaller pieces of intelligibility. For instance, uh, a sentence. Uh, a sentence which uh, you find in the, well, in fact, it's not a, a sentence uh, at all. A sentence which is mentioned in the uh, written lectures is really uh, just a string of words. And the string of words I, I chose is, is uh, beer odd parses. Okay, what you have there are, are three words strung together as if they were a sentence, uh, but in fact, they don't make sense, they don't have intelligibility as a sentence, as a whole. However, they do, or that, that string of words, that string of uh, three words, uh, does have uh, um, intelligibility at the level of the words themselves. That is, the words beer, odd, and parses are all intelligible as they stand. The problem is simply that, um, that when we come up a level to the level of sentence, uh, that they don't make sense. So my point is simply that intelligibility uh, can be uh, either large in context or small in context, uh, or in fact, uh, something which purports to be a word, for instance, can lack intelligibility altogether. For instance, there may be, instead of using the word uh, uh, beer, that is B-E-E-R, we may just find uh, the words B-R on the page, and then we have something which is not uh, uh, intelligible at all as a word. There 
other things in the world which are also uh, intelligible, uh, animals, for instance, that is, uh, and in particular, uh, the essences of animals, a rabbit, for instance, makes sense. It has a certain structure which we can grasp. A scientist can, can uh, study rabbits and come to grasp its, its nature. And, uh, and that's basically to grasp its reason, uh, grasp its intelligibility. Also, groups of people can have a certain intelligibility. For instance, um, a marriage has a certain intelligibility, um, and it has more intelligibility the better it works. For intelligibility ultimately depends on having a point. For, uh, it depends on, on getting towards something. So, so if a marriage is, is, is working well, um, all the parts in the marriage, all the events in a marriage, in a family, are going to come together in a reasonable, intelligible way that is reasonable given the points of having a marriage, of having a family. Another example that I'll use a number of times is an army. An army, too, has a structure. It's, it's, a, it's a very complex uh, structure, a very complex body of people, but it has a particular point, that is victory in war, and, um, uh, and it has various parts which are not always identical one with the other. It has, it has various uh, weapons, it has various other equipment, it has people, it has generals who are distinct from privates, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, all these things can be described as intelligible. Any complex uh, intelligible entity, uh, especially uh, in organization, um, can be assessed to determine just how well it fits together, how well uh, it uh, achieves its own intelligibility, that is, intelligibility as that type of thing. In a marriage, for instance, to come, to come back to that example, uh, uh, you may have uh, different parts in a marriage which are intelligible in themselves. For instance, it may be intelligible in itself for a person to um, be uh, living in one city uh, and his wife or her husband to be living in another city. And those are intelligible things to do. But it may not uh, be a good thing for a marriage, for the intelligibility of a marriage, for its point, for those two people to be living separately. It's not always the case, but it can be the case. Let's come now, however, and we must uh, come now to human actions themselves. And human actions, as I said, are intelligible. In many ways, uh, a human action is an idea. It's important to realize, however, that, uh, that actions, although they are ideas and they find their existence primarily in the intelligible, that is, in the, in, in, in the intellectual, in our minds, as uh, Hamlet said, it's, there's nothing that's good or bad except uh, our thinking makes it so. Although that is the case, actions are also about things. So. Uh, Actions uh, do have reference. Their very intelligibility pertains to the physical. 
They're also quite difficult to grasp sometimes, that is an action. Uh, an example of uh, a solid physical thing which has an intelligibility would be, for instance, uh, a rifle, a weapon that a soldier uses in, in, in war. And he is taught at the beginning of his training to take it apart and un to understand how all its various parts fit together. That is why we do that, why uh, a soldier does that in order to understand uh, those parts. When we come to human actions, things are much more difficult, primarily because human actions don't sit still. Once an action is uh, performed, it's gone. Nonetheless, there are ways in which we can we can organize our understanding, that is, our attempts uh, to grasp the intelligibility of human actions. There are primarily two limiting factors for action. The first of these limiting factors is ignorance. In other words, if I'm ignorant of what I'm doing, then that's, uh, which I do at least in that aspect, cannot be uh, a human action. So it's not a moral action for which I'm responsible. And also another limiting factor would be force. So if I'm actually forced to do something by someone else, to the extent that I am forced to do it, I'm not responsible for it. It's not a moral action. As Thomas Aquinas would say, it's not uh, a human action. But once we get past those limiting uh, uh, issues, those limiting uh, factors, um, and we look at actions which we acknowledge are um, uh, genuine human actions, then there are three aspects that we have to look at. And these aspects are, in fact, mentioned in John Paul II's uh, encyclical Veritatis Splendor. And these are the so-called sources of morality. The first of these sources is intention. The second is or are the circumstances of an act. And finally, the third is the object of the act. So we'll go through those uh, three sources of morality in order. Intention. Thomas Aquinas uses an example which is very useful and I'll mention a number of times during these lectures. He mentions the example of a thief who steals a golden cup from a temple. The example itself is taken from uh, non-Christian, that is, pagan philosophy, but he uses it. And, and in fact, we can simply think of stealing a chalice from a church. And in this case, uh, the, um, the action is an action which has a particular moral character, and that moral character is uh, called sacrilege. It's a sacrilegious act. And uh, we can well believe that a thief um, takes uh, that uh, chalice or that cup from the sacred place in order to desecrate that particular place. And that is his intention. I'll come to the other uh, things later, obviously. Now, it's very important to realize that intention uh, is not um, necessarily something that uh, is entirely under our own control. That uh, it's not the case, for instance, that if uh, 
a person says to himself in his own mind, tells, a, tells himself a, a story in his mind that uh, I do not mean to desecrate this church, that is to commit sacrilege. It does not mean that uh, in doing what he does, that is commit an act of uh, sacrilege, that he is not uh, intending, in fact, to commit sacrilege. Uh, our intention is largely determined by what we know. And given that this person knows um, that this type of an act is sacrilege, then he is, uh, in fact, intending to commit sacrilege, according to Thomas. So let us go on then to the second of the uh, fonts or the sources of morality. And this is the object. In the sacrilege case, the case that we've been considering, the object uh, is, in fact, the cup or the chalice. Or we may say that it's the cup or the chalice qua stealable, that is, as understandable, as intelligible, as uh, uh, to be stolen or possibly to be stolen. In Veritatis Splendor, the Holy Father uh, uh, says these words. He says, in order to be able to grasp the object of an act, which specifies that act morally, he says, it is necessary to place oneself in the perspective of the acting person. And at that point, he, he cites uh, Thomas Aquinas. So again, it's very important that we realize that even an object, although it can be a physical object, uh, is an object insofar as it's intelligible, insofar as we grasp what it is. Uh, however, it's very important, in fact, that this is a, um, an issue which has uh, upsets a good number of uh, theologians and philosophers, Catholic Christian theologians and philosophers in re recent years. Although we're talking uh, about things from the perspective of the acting person, as the Holy Father says, that doesn't exclude the physical. Thomas Aquinas, in the very section that, uh, um, that uh, the Pope quotes, is very clear about that, that uh, uh, saying quite explicitly that uh, the object of an act, although intelligible, is uh, a thing. It can, or at least it can be, a physical thing. A good example of this, and this is, uh, as I said, you know, perhaps a, a controversial example, is uh, the use of condoms or prophylactics. Uh, in, uh, and the cases where it often comes up is, is uh, in the case of the prevention of AIDS. And the, the issue is that, well, it's, you know, it's possible to, in fact, use a prophylactic uh, simply in order to prevent disease. Um, and the argument being that we can't take into consideration the physical characteristics of something, that is, uh, that there is a, a prophylactic being used uh, in a moral argument. But uh, that type of argument does not wash, at least if you're, if you're following Thomas Aquinas and, in fact, Aristotle, because the physical can, in fact, enter in. So let's move on now to the third of the sources of morality, that is circumstances. And the circumstances, the list of circumstances that Thomas Aquinas uh, uses is taken from uh, Aristotle, but also from Cicero. It's, it's a, uh, a sort of combined list from both authors. And the list, the, t the standard classical list is 
who, what, where, by what means, why, how, and when, and, according to Cicero, about what. To use the example uh, that we have been using, that is, of the cup uh, in, the in the temple, um, the, uh, we've already talked about the, um, about the object. So the object is the cup itself. Uh, the fact that that uh, cup is in a temple is a circumstance. And also uh, the intention, at least according uh, to Thomas Aquinas, also Aristotle, is a circumstance. It's a circumstance insofar it, is, it doesn't belong to the basic act that the, uh, that the thief is performing. Uh, uh, it, it's not uh, in the very essence of the act, that is, what, that, that which is right before him. What's important and a bit difficult to understand about circumstances is that sometimes they can enter into the very nature of the thing that a person is doing and sometimes not. And for instance, if I steal a car uh, and uh, let's say I steal your car, uh, it makes no difference whether the, your car, when I steal it, is on this street or that street. And, and so that circumstance doesn't come into the, uh, into the uh, the very nature of the act that you're doing. But in the case of sacrilege, the fact that this cup is actually in the temple or in the church, that changes completely the nature of the act. So circumstances uh, occasionally come in, or actually fairly frequently come in and uh, give you the very nature of the act and become, they become very, very important uh, morally. The question is obviously, well, how do we decide when a circumstance has this sort of moral significance? And the answer is simply that we must look to the intelligibility. We must look to what reason says about such acts. And reason, that is over the centuries, uh, uh, reason as it comes to us through the teachings of the church, but also in, in the laws of a society, uh, basically in natural law, Reason says that it is not a good thing to desecrate a holy place. So those are the three uh, uh, fonts, the three sources of morality. I'd like to finish just by talking about one of the two um, uh, limiting uh, factors that I mentioned earlier. I mentioned uh, two of them, you'll recall. The first of them is simply ignorance. So, so in other words, if you're ignorant of something, well, then uh, you're not responsible for it. In fact, we've already been talking about ignorance. Okay, so, so if, for instance, uh, a person uh, doesn't realize that the building from which he takes the chalice is, or the cup, is a temple or is a church, well, then he can't uh, uh, commit sacrilege. And uh, so anyhow... Ignorance is, is something that, which is always in the background as limiting uh, what comes into the uh, realm of the moral. But the other uh, issue, the other limiting factor is force. The standard uh, line in Aristotle, or the classical definition of Aristotle, which comes in the third book of the Nicomachean Ethics, is that of which the initiative is outside the agent, that is, the acting person. That is, the person involved contributes nothing to it. So that's the standard 
definition of force, exonerating force. An example, in fact, it's an example which is often used in the literature, and it's, example, it's an example taken from ancient philosophy, is, in, in fact, from Aristotle, is the example of a person being pushed onto a catapult, which triggers, and, and, uh, and the catapult kills a friend of the person who's pushed onto the catapult. Well, in that case, the, the person, although in a sense he's, he's the agent of, of that action, of the killing, uh, it's not his uh, moral action because he's been forced. Okay, so that's the standard example of force or a standard example. It's my own opinion, and, but it's an opinion which is based uh, on especially Aristotle and uh, also Thomas, that we can extend that uh, notion of force uh, to take in some other issues, that is, uh, to analyze uh, how anything that does not have, uh, that does not depend on the agent's own initiative uh, can be excluded from the moral realm. That is, he's not responsible for this. I'll just use, to close, it's, a, it's an example which is, is a standard example in, in modern bioethics. And uh, just, and again, it's, it's, it's a bit controversial uh, it's not in controversial in terms of doctrine, but controversial uh, uh, or in the sense that people may not immediately agree with it. But, uh, but anyhow, this is the example, and, and it may help to, to bring out the distinction, is that the church, in fact, at the end of the 19th century, said that um, uh, it's immoral for a doctor to actually attack a fetus in the womb in order to help the woman, that is the, the, the fetus's mother, uh, to live, uh, given that that woman uh, could not live uh, if that fetus uh, continued to live. And, and so anyhow, the, the, the church said uh, that that couldn't be done. So let's, to, to change the example a bit, because they didn't have this technology then, but, but if you can imagine that a, that a woman has to give birth, uh, but giving birth will kill her, uh, a possible solution would be simply to dissolve the fetus by means of chemicals. And the church said very clearly that that is not uh, to be done. It's, it's an immoral act because it's direct killing. In fact, the object of that act is the fetus. But there's another example, which is often used among Catholic moralists, among not only Catholic moralists, and that's the example of a woman who needs to have a hysterectomy because her, her uterus is cancerous. And there... Uh, and she also happens to be uh, pregnant. And uh, if the situation is such that um, the, uh, that the uh, operation for the cancer is genuinely forced upon the doctor and upon the woman, it is possible to perform the hysterectomy, that is possible morally to perform that hysterectomy, even though the fetus is going to die during the, um, during the operation. And the reason for this, that is the reason for the distinction between these two things, is precisely that hysterectomy, as a practice, belongs to 
medicine, but medicine understood in the sense of a practice that is an organization, an organization of actions, etc., which is well organized, and not only well organized, but um, uh, but intelligible, and intelligible in the sense that it fits, it does not violate um, any uh, moral precepts. For instance, it doesn't, it doesn't violate the, the precept of against uh, direct attacks against innocence. Um, the application of the notion of force here is simply the fact that, um, that when the doctor comes to that operation, the fact that hysterectomy is an accepted operation, an accepted practice of medicine, has nothing to do with his own uh, decision. That is something that uh, comes uh, uh, with the medical profession itself. And therefore, that type of an act uh, uh, can be performed uh, because um, the death of the fetus is um, outside of that very, very fixed practice. So these are, um, as I said in this first lesson, my hope was to delve into the very intelligibility, the very, uh, the very essence of, uh, of ethics, and that is moral action, in order that we might be able to uh, derive some principles from, uh, from some examples, some controversial examples, and in fact, some examples that we'll continue to uh, use in the second video lesson. Thank you. Hello again. In the first uh, lesson, the first video lesson, I spoke a good deal about the intelligibility of human action. That is, it's uh, logical, coherence, etc. In this second lesson, in fact, we'll be talking about two general areas of ethics. And in fact, the intelligibility, the logic, we might say, is quite different in these two different uh, areas. The first area that we'll look at is uh, the ethics of sexuality and reproduction. And the second area, what we might call the logic of killing. And as I said, we'll see that, the, um, that these two areas work quite differently. So obviously what we're continuing to do is to try to understand from the inside how ethics works. So let's uh, begin with uh, sexuality, that is the ethics of sexuality and reproduction, some related matters. And the primary thing that we have to realize here is that uh, in the ethics of, of, of sexuality, there's a central model, uh, a central act. In fact, it's a central basic act, which, which determines uh, what the morality of a particular sexual action is. Uh, that is, whether it's uh, a moral act or an immoral act. That is, and this uh, central act, this central model, is the uh, marital act, the conjugal act. Uh, it's fairly important to realize, in fact, this is a difference between Thomas Aquinas and his uh, teacher, uh, Albert the Great. It's fairly important to realize that the unit that is the basic uh, unit of intelligibility is uh, not simply sexual intercourse, 
but it's marital inter intercourse. And this is much tied up with the idea that marriage itself, according to Christian morality, according to Thomas, also in fact, uh, Albert uh, the Great, marriage itself is intelligible. It's a reasonable thing to do. In fact, it's, it's man's most reasonable way of dealing with sexuality. And so when we uh, try to determine the morality of sexual acts, we naturally uh, compare them to the one uh, clearly intelligible act in the sexual sphere, and that is the marital act, that is a conjugal act, an act between a man and women, a woman who, uh, who uh, are married one to the other. What we're talking about here uh, in talking about the conjugal act is we're talking about a basic act, uh, uh, something uh, uh, which we also mentioned, which I also mentioned in the, in the first section, that is uh, uh, the, the basic act which stands immediately before the person as he acts. And that's uh, pretty much determined, uh, or at least uh, fairly well determined, by the object. So uh, uh, an act of, uh, of, um, of intercourse, marital intercourse, conjugal intercourse, uh, on the part of either spouse has as its object the other spouse. And, and so it's very much a, a physical uh, analysis that must, must, be, must be done. And yet, as I also emphasized in the uh, first lesson, uh, these are intelligible things. We're talking about, about uh, the use of bodies, the use of physical things in an intelligible way. So the conjugal act is basic. It's a basic type of thing that can be done. Now, when we talk about basic acts such as this, what makes them important is their very simplicity. Another example would simply be the act of telling the truth, truth-telling. And there's something pure and simple. Its intelligibility is, is, is all there in the very notion of saying the truth. There's no... There are no parts or no circumstances to have to deal with. We can just look at that uh, basic act and recognize, for instance, that, for instance, that that act is good in itself. Uh, similarly, the conjugal act, the marital act, is good in itself. The, um, uh, the other side of this, that is, if you want to say the other side of the coin, are bad acts, that, that is, bad acts which, uh, which are the uh, counterparts, that is, the negative counterparts to these basically good acts. And just as the good side of basic acts are always good, uh, the bad side, or at least they, they, are, they, they are good in themselves, it's not always good to have, for instance, uh, uh, sexual intercourse even with your wife, but, but the act itself in its simplicity is good. And similarly, uh, truth-telling is in itself good. Uh, but when you go directly against that and, for instance, tell a falsehood or tell a lie or perform some sort of sexual act which is not the conjugal act, automatically, immediately, that becomes immoral. And this is the root, this idea is the root of uh, the idea which the uh, church often mentions in its documents of moral absolutes, which are almost always uh, absolute moral prohibitions. Uh, things are absolutely morally prohibited if they go against something which is so basic uh, uh, in its own goodness uh, that uh, the flip side of them, that is, in fact, their perversion is necessarily perverse. 
There's no room, there's no wiggle room there. They, they have to be uh, immoral. In the first lesson, in fact, I, I, I talked about, the, um, about language and, and about the idea of a whole language being intelligible, being ordered, uh, uh, a whole culture being ordered. Uh, this is never going to happen, but uh, we can imagine it. And, uh, and talking about the intelligibility of a paragraph or a sentence. And in fact, we can get down to the intelligibility of words that, um, that might be intelligible in themselves but not fit into the sentence. What we have with uh, the violation of a basic act, that is like an immoral sexual act, is, uh, is, is, can be compared to uh, uh, a word or something which purports to be a word but in fact isn't a word. So we're, we're, at this point we're down to the most basic uh, units of, of ethics and we're finding something in, unintelligible at that very lowest level. And, uh, and that, as I've been saying, is, is what generates uh, the fact that there are some actions which are inherently, that is, uh, intrinsically um, evil, uh, that is intrinsically not to be done. So the, um, to go on then, uh, to talk just a bit and give some examples of uh, uh, having to do with uh, sexuality and the conjugal act. Uh, uh, one example of a sexual act which would uh, not be conjugal would obviously be adultery. And adultery is simply um, always wrong. But it's always wrong precisely because it violates that, that core, that kernel of intelligibility which is the uh, uh, marital act, the conjugal act. Uh, adultery um, can in fact make sense in its own sense, I mean uh, in, its, in its own uh, right so to speak, but it cannot fit into a larger picture of how we ought to behave uh, morally. Similarly, in acts like masturbation is, is, uh, is, uh, um, falls short of the conjugal act and therefore it cannot fit into the system uh, of, of uh, intelligibility, which is marriage. Okay? It simply doesn't fit in. I mean, if we were to use the example also from the first uh, lesson of the army and uh, the various parts in the army, uh, in, uh, uh, if, a, um, if a private, if, if a, a, a soldier has, has, a, has a gun, has a weapon, uh, which has a part which is simply broken. Uh, and uh, well, that's not going to help the point. It's not going to help um, the army get to where it needs to go because there's something which is not functioning. There's something which lacks intelligibility. And uh, um, so uh, uh, we find a similar thing in marriage. So for instance, with, with an act of, of, of masturbation, for instance, even within marriage, uh, is that uh, it's, there's something inherently incoherent about it, and therefore it's not going to um, help the couple uh, achieve what they ought to be achieving by their very marriage. That is, they're not going to get to the end of their own marriage as it's constituted uh, by nature in an intelligible, reasonable way. The church has um, formulated uh, the properties of the conjugal act, and uh, they've done this primarily within the context of, of canon law. And obviously in canon law, 
the church is interested in saying very often when we have a marriage, when we're dealing with a marriage, whether a marriage in, in canon law, unfortunately, it's, it's often a matter of, of uh, dissolving uh, or declaring null uh, marriages. And so, so you have to have criteria for saying just exactly when do we have a marriage. And, uh, and so everything, much of the, uh, the intellectual content, the uh, theoretical content of the canon law of marriage comes down to the definition of the conjugal act. And the conjugal act has been defined in canon law as having, uh, uh, as meeting certain criteria. And among these criteria are that the act be engaged in with full consent, that is of both uh, parties, um, and also that that act be open to new life, that is that there not be the use of uh, contraception, and finally, that there be one flesh unity, that is that the, uh, the, the uh, wife and the uh, husband actually come together in, uh, in one flesh unity, that there's physical contact betw between them. And in fact, that um, criteria is that last, that, that last criterion is excluded by the use of prophylactics, prophylactics or, or condoms. This is the uh, example I used in the, um, in the last example or sorry, in the last lesson. A question that obviously arises here, uh, or arises after uh, uh, not much thought, is, is that uh, whether it's uh, possible for a sterile couple to be open to life. And, uh, uh, and well, we know, in fact, that, that according to the church, in fact, according to uh, human history, within human history, most, most uh, human societies have in fact recognized that it's possible for sterile couples to, to uh, marry. So it is possible for them to, to perform a genuinely marital act in order to begin their marriage. The question then becomes, well, well how can you say that a sterile couple is open to life? And, and in fact, the, the the way, the way that we have to understand that uh, phrase, open to life, according to the church, is simply that uh, no one can intentionally, that is using their intention and knowing they're doing it, et cetera, no one can intentionally uh, put any sort of barrier or prevent uh, conception in any way. And that would mean uh, that the couple was closed to life. So as long as someone does not do anything like that, well, then, then the act, even if it's, if it's uh, between two sterile people, or at least the, the, the couple uh, itself is sterile, in, in that case, it's considered uh, open to life insofar as life is not deliberately uh, excluded, that is possible life, uh, that is children. In the case of the um, sterile couple, it's also the case that um, uh, it's immoral, according to the church, uh, for a sterile couple to use prophylactics, for them to use a condom. And the reason for this has not so much to do with, the, um, with uh, contraception, but rather with that phrase which I've already used, that is um, uh, one flesh unity, is that it's, it's part, it's part of the definition of the conjugal act that the two, the, 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 the man and his wife, uh, have to come together uh, in, a full, uh, sex, in a full physical way and sexual way. And, and that, uh, in fact, uh, um, excludes, that's what uh, makes uh, 
it's uh, immoral, in fact, to use condoms in, even in marit marital in intercourse. And even if the, uh, the couple are sterile and haven't the uh, uh, capability of conceiving in any case, or at least they think not. This, in fact, has, has been some, uh, an area of dispute in recent years, and there, there have been a number of people that have resisted the idea that the, um, that the ban on contraception of the church could have to do with something so physical, so, so physical, for instance, as, as um, condoms, et cetera. And, uh, um, and the tendency, at least among uh, certain very solid Catholics, uh, has been to say that, well, what's wrong with uh, uh, contraception is that it's anti-possible life. And, and what that does is it takes the whole, the whole um, theology of marriage, in fact, the philosophy of marriage, uh, into a different area. In fact, it, it, it brings it into the category of the fifth commandment, which has to do with uh, killing or not. Uh, it's interesting that uh, in... Uh, a recent encyclical of the Holy Father that uh, he's rejected uh, that approach and uh, says explicitly that um, the analysis of the conjugal acts um, has to do or it falls under the sixth commandment. So it's, it's a question of sexuality, not of intending or not intending to um, uh, bring about um, possible life. Let's uh, now go to the second uh, area of ethics. And uh, I mentioned at the beginning that uh, the logic of this area of ethics, this sector of ethics, uh, is quite different from, from the first. Um, and in fact, we have to admit that um, it's quite a bit more complicated. That is, uh, in this case, that is in the case of killing, we can't simply look to one uh, model, like the conjugal act, in order to see whether our act is, is um, matching that or whether, whether it corresponds to the, that act. And the problem is that in, when we're talking about the ethics of killing, there is no one model to look at. Um, in fact, when we're, looking about, when we're talking about the ethics of killing, we're talking about whether, whether my act, for instance, of killing another could possibly be moral. So, so we can't use simply living as the model to be followed in my act because, in fact, the living uh, that's at, in, at issue here is the life of the other person. So, so, and, and, and in a sense, I mean, in, in, a, in a very real sense, uh, no one uh, chooses, no one has the intention uh, to live. One simply lives. So it's in, in that sense, it's, it's, it's not a, a human act or it's, it's, it's not a, a moral act that is simply to live. I mean, we can occasionally have the intention to, to, um, uh, to continue to live, but, um, but we, we don't wake up in the morning and say, that, say to ourselves, well, I intend to live today. And, and so, so anyhow, but the point is that, that when we're in this realm of ethics, that is when we're talking about the ethics of killing, that we don't have the same sort of model. What we have instead is a sort of central default principle. And uh, this default principle says basically, avoid taking life. But being a default principle, what it says is that um, this is a general rule to be followed, but there are considerations that we need to take, take into account 
uh, which determine whether that default principle is going to apply. In a way, uh, what we're talking about is, is a principle which um, only clicks in in certain circumstances and in other circumstances clicks out. That is, it's not applicable. But it still determines uh, logically the, this whole sector of, um, of ethics. Now, a very central article in Thomas Aquinas for the ethics of killing is uh, in the second of the second part of the Summa Theologiae, that is the Secunda Secundae, and the uh, article uh, in question is Article 64, or sorry, it's Question 64 in Article 7. And, uh, and it's a very, very uh, important uh, piece of writing in which Thomas sets out certain um, uh, principles for this particular sector of ethics. And that article, and I'll just refer to it as 64-7 for, for, to be brief, that article is divided into two sectors. The first sector talks about personal self-defense. And what Thomas Aquinas says is that, is that when someone is being attacked, when it's a case of personally defending himself, that person can, in fact, morally kill. This is a place where, where the default principle um, no longer applies, so it clicks out, so to speak. So um, when you're in, a, in a, uh, a situation in which you have to defend yourself um, personally, well, then you can do it. And the reason that you can do it, he says, is that the killing or the death of the assailants um, is beside the intention. Praetor intentionum is, is the phrase that he uses. And, um, and he also says that uh, the person that kills has to use proportionate means. So you can't use uh, a means, a lethal means, which is, is, is too strong for that particular situation. We'll come back to that issue. So that's the first section of that, uh, of that article. The, sex, the second uh, section of 64-7 in fact, talks not about personal self-defense, but public self-defense. In fact, he's talking about, he mentions uh, soldiers and also uh, other officers of the law. And he says that in defending themselves, it's interesting that he still talks about uh, uh, self-defense. He says, in defending themselves, uh, in fact, they can intend to kill. So it's, it's perfectly um, uh, moral for a soldier to intend to kill. That's a very, very important point because what it shows is that in this very central um, principle, in this very central article for the ethics of killing, is that the issue is not simply what is intended. Okay, it's not. It's it's not simply a question of what is in our mind, what we mean to be doing. That's not what determines whether the uh, default principle clicks in or clicks out. Um, the uh, it's, it's another factor, okay? It's, it's uh, the fact of, in fact, it's intention, it, it's, in fact, it's possible to intend to kill and to do that morally. That is, if we're in a certain situation, in, for instance, in which um, uh, the public uh, wheel, that is, uh, the city uh, or the nation, um, licenses uh, that particular act of killing. And then, in that case, it can be intended. The question then becomes, uh, or, or presents itself, well, how do we determine uh, when, 
when such uh, situations present themselves, or, or how do we know that, in fact, it is moral for soldiers, for instance, to kill? I mean, what, again, as I said, we're trying to get to the, to the heart, the, see morality from the inside. How, how in fact, um, do we determine these things, that there is a difference between self-defense and public defense? And, uh, um, and the answer, and it's quite apparent in 64-7, in that article of Thomas Aquinas, is that what we do, first of all, is we look to the law. We look to, as I say in the written lectures, the first thing that, that Thomas Aquinas does is he reaches for his law books. So although Thomas does, first of all, reach for his law books, that is, consider what is in the law, this is not to say that uh, morality simply depends on what uh, is written in law books in a particular society for that would uh, end us, that would uh, take us immediately into relativism, and what we're looking for uh, is uh, moral truth. The point, rather, is this, is that, that, um, that Thomas follows an Aristotelian uh, methodology uh, in his uh, moral analysis, and, and that involves always, first of all, um, considering all the opinions, that is, the reputable opinions that are before him, and, uh, and then uh, in order to get the basic uh, material, and then sifting through that and uh, seeing what's contradictory, what contradicts uh, 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 other laws and until you come up with a, a system of law which is coherent, which is intelligible. And, uh, um, and when he reaches for his law books or when, when, he, when he invokes the law as he does in 64-7, uh, what he's invoking in fact is, is a sort of perfect system of law that is a perfect system of law which would be consistent with uh, natural law and eternal law, et cetera, and uh, which would correspond as much as possible to uh, the nature of human beings. And uh, okay, so, so that's what he's determining. That's what, um, that's what he allows to determine um, what, uh, uh, what decides us to accept certain acts, for instance, acts of personal self-defense as moral and others as immoral, et cetera. Okay. So let's just to conclude, let, let me just mention a couple of things about, first of all, uh, personal self-defense and then uh, about public self-defense. And personal self-defense, I mentioned originally that, uh, that is when I originally uh, mentioned 64-7, that important article in Thomas Aquinas, that he, he talks about intention, that is, uh, uh, he's saying that when, when you are attacked and you are defending yourself, uh, what happens is that, um, that that death, the death of the assailant, is beside your intention, and, and therefore your act is moral. And uh, he also uses the phrase there uh, that you must use proportionate means to repel that attack. And, the only point I want to make here is that, in fact, proportionate means is very much tied up with, um, with intention itself. And so, for instance, if you imagine that a, a person uh, is in a situation in which there's a tripwire somehow rigged up so that if there's an attacker, uh, a man can always pull a lever or something, the tripwire comes up and the attack stops. Okay, so let's, let's presume he's in that sort of a situation. But he also happens to have a, a, you know, a large caliber deer rifle you know, next to his chair. And uh, so someone comes up uh, 
attacking him, let's say with a gun, and uh, instead of uh, uh, using the tripwire, which he's certain would, would, would function in this case, uh, he picks up his, his deer rifle and, and blows the guy away, and he, and he kills him. Uh, in that case, he would be using disproportionate means. And, uh, and in fact, what that does, it, it, when you've got that sort of a situation, it's clear that the person who uses the deer rifle um, intends to kill. Okay, and that's precisely why he doesn't use the tripwire. So proportionate means and um, intention to kill are very much tied together. And let me just finally say a word about uh, public self-defense, that is the um, self-defense that uh, soldiers uh, engage in. And what you have there is the difference, as I mentioned several times already, is that the difference is that a soldier is permitted to intend to kill. I mean, he's part of, uh, it's, in this way, it's, it's like medicine. He's part of, a, of an intelligible structure which has reason. It has, uh, it's a reasonable thing to defend oneself in a just uh, war, for instance. And, uh, and, and uh, given that he's in this intelligible and therefore moral structure, um, and that that structure is set up in order to kill enemies that are attacking unjustly, um, a soldier in that sort of a context, within that sort of intelligible structure, can in fact intend to kill, uh, simply because, um, because of the structure. The structure allows him to do it. Let me just say one final point about, um, about the, uh, the ethics of war. And, uh, and that is just a very brief uh, comment. There are more uh, remarks in the, written, uh, in the written lessons. A short comment about, about just war. And the uh, catechism uh, put out by John Paul II is very good. It sets out the various criteria for uh, just war. And uh, it's also important to realize that there are two types of uh, ways of, anal of analyzing um, acts of war, that is, uh, or acts which have to do with war. Some of those uh, acts actually occur within uh, a war and within an army, that is, after uh, a just war, presumably a pres presumably just war, has already been, been declared. And uh, um, in, in that case, um, what we are using, those type of acts, they fall under the second section of 64-7. So, so intention is, is uh, important there, uh, uh, and it's also allowable. And, uh, um, but there are also rules there. And uh, one of the rules, a very important rule, is that the object of an act of a soldier, a genuinely uh, military act of a soldier, the object must be an enemy. So the, the object cannot be be uh, an innocent person. And, uh, but in any case, there are a number of, of, of rules uh, f which apply to soldiers as they're in the army, as they're fighting. But there's another whole category of criteria having to do with war. And these are the criteria which have to do with going to war. In other words, the, it's, this area is called the use ad bellum. So that is, that is um, justice as it, as it pertains to going to war. And there, 
we find the criteria which you can find by uh, looking up this section in the, uh, in the catechism. There we find the criteria uh, set out by the church, not by uh, necessarily one individual. In fact, the, the criteria come from Augustine, St. Augustine, also Thomas Aquinas, and, uh, and they've been further developed in, in the more recent teaching of the church. And, but the one point I, I want to leave you with is, is that uh, uh, those criteria are much more similar to what we find in the first part of 64-7. That is, they have to do with intention uh, or they have to do with self-defense. So, so uh, the criteria for going to war have um, much more to do with making sure that a war, in order to be declared just, um, has to be, in some sense, an act of self-defense. It has to be um, uh, either an act of self-defense or some means of redressing wrongs or injustices uh, suffered in the past. So, so uh, in that way, the um, intention of the warring nation, the justly warring nation, um, will always be um, good rather than simply death, that is, to kill the other nation or the other of the other soldiers. On the other hand, as, I, as, as we need to emphasize, once, once that um, situation is in place, that is once you have a just war in an army uh, which is uh, uh, fighting a just, just war, well then um, uh, within that context there can be intentional killing. In fact, there has to be because that's what uh, an army is set up for. So those are uh, some ideas having to do with uh, with ethics in general, and also the ethics of sexuality and killing. Uh, the whole thing, I, I would be the first to uh, acknowledge, is complicated. It's not simple. Uh, however, uh, I think that by putting our minds to it, putting, uh, by many people putting their minds to it, and in fact putting their minds to it um, over many centuries, that we can find organization in it. We can find intelligibility and that, that uh, it is in intelligibility, in rationality, that uh, morality exists. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.